All right, Element Rescue is back with some podcasts. This is going to be under, we actually just came up with this last night on our first failed podcast with Andy. But this will be part of our drunk physics portion where it's mandatory that both sides of the podcast, no matter where their locations are, uh, begin drinking uh, some sort of beverage. Uh, I don't know, Andy, what do you think? Like within an hour of starting the podcast? Yeah, I would like to say that I'm at an hour. Okay, so it will start off kind of a buzz podcast, a buzz physics, and move its way into more of a drunk state, I guess, is, is what we're looking at. Yes. Okay, all right, cool. So we are doing this one with uh, Andy Schrader of Recon Response. Some of you may enjoy his antics on Instagram. Uh, if you're unaware of that, I would definitely... Follow that dude on IG for the banter that goes on at times. What you'll find, um, and I say this to Andy's face, is a lot of times he may be more boring face-to-face, but on IG, he's absolutely freaking hysterical. As I'm sure he's going to be this evening too, Andy, right? Ah, it's a tough call. I mean, I'm pretty much like a professional Instagram writer. Funny guy, yeah. Right. Yeah, I get you. So Andy yeah. and I have known each other for a while, and we'll kind of talk about uh, when we linked up a while ago, but Andy has a significant background, works with uh, USAR teams and an uh, interesting perspective, but is a wealth of knowledge. So Andy, hit it real quick on a little bit with your background, man. Sure. Well, hello, listeners. Sean, thank you for having me. Um, my background is all in construction. I am a licensed professional engineer. I'm a certified general contractor, um, so I, I have a construction background mostly in uh, structural repair of buildings. I am a. I work as a structure specialist for the state of Florida and for the United States. Basically, my job is to assess and help remediate structural hazards that might present themselves during urban search and rescue situations. Those situations would normally, you know, a lot of people think about urban search and rescue meaning hurricane, tornadoes, earthquakes, things like that. But they could they could really happen at any at any time and anywhere. Man-made man-made uh, accidents like construction accidents, of course, can happen. Um, acts of terrorism, explosions, whether uh, accidental or intentional, um, and even tornadoes. Uh, tornado hits a trailer park. Even if you're a cop, or even if you're just riding in a rescue all day long, um, tornado hits a trailer park, and you're the first to arrive on scene you have all of a sudden become the world's smallest urban search and rescue team. So congratulations. Um, that's why this kind of stuff matters to anyone, even to civilians who might be in, in those CERT programs, people who just want to help when things happen. All right, so I I guess I knew nothing about that with you, man, uh, the engineering thing. I I thought this was about the your male stripping and interpretive dance background, man. So we are on two different pages right now. I thought I thought that was an us thing that we didn't talk about. That like, that is an okay. So engineer, yes, uh, you also do some writing, right? Uh, which is where we first met. You've got some like oh, I've got a bachelor's degree, I got a master's degree, or all that crap. So go through that just for whatever. Sure. And uh, but you also write for, and I'll go ahead and let I'll let you nail that out. Do I do I have to say it in that voice that you use though that like really annoying voice? Like the, I'm, just... a, I'm a man. Yes, if you uh, no, you don't have to, man. You don't have to. Um, you can use your regular annoying voice. 
I'm sorry, I for, I forgot about my ma my vast education. Um, so I have my bachelor's and master's degrees in civil structural engineering from the University of South Florida, Tampa, and I'm certified by the Army Corps of Engineers as a structure specialist responder. Um, in terms of writing, you may have heard of Recoil Magazine. Um, I, I write for that family of magazines, which would include Recoil Magazine, Recoil Off-Grid Magazine, which is for geared towards urban survivalism, and also Recoil Concealment Magazine, which is obviously geared towards uh, concealed carry holders. Gotcha. Yeah, you've so, actually done quite a few like articles recently in, I guess, all of those magazines, uh, which is where you and I first kind of started talking was on an off-grid one on MassCal. So you, you do write quite a bit on a medical side, although not a medical background, but I think it's an interest of yours because you've done quite a few good articles on them. Uh, we did a MassCal thing, uh, and that, that's like we talked about last night on the podcast that didn't work out because of the microphone issues where you did the direct quote on me that made me locally famous for uh, saying that you can treat a soft TW like a like a prison bitch and it still right. works, meaning that, yeah, that it's it's hard to break one of those things. So that was good. So one thing I learned is when somebody quotes you, they they actually quote you, like word for word. Yeah, that's kind of an unfortunate side effect of interviews. Okay, and, and now I know that. I, I got that. I got that. I'm sorry. No, no, I love it. I love it. Um, that's good <laughs> stuff. I'm glad you didn't quote everything that I said. <laughs> Which is which is awesome. So real quick, getting back onto structural collapse, kind of how I think we've talked about framing this, and so everybody's kind of got gained some fidelity on this. Is we're going to go through just kind of a holistic structural collapse 101 type of thing here, which can be a review for people that already do it on USAR teams, maybe give some insight and some things they hadn't thought about, but also for people that may not think they need to have any kind of knowledge on it, but give them some capabilities that should potentially help them should they find themselves in a situation like that, whether it is a natural disaster or, you know, as we're speaking, I think uh, a hurricane's moving into uh, Texas right now as, as we're doing this, but or an act of terrorism, right? If we if we would have thought about Boston a little bit differently and they used a, a high-end explosive that, that produced a blast wave or anything like this, then that suddenly becomes a reality where on another podcast, on a kind of part two, then we'll kind of get into more of the more academic stuff that you obviously were bragging about yourself not too long ago about your masters and your bachelors and I'm a army engine whatever man so that's then we'll get into more sophisticated things uh, on another podcast sure. yeah uh, I was happy to get away with what I just said without you coming back uh, with anything so I, I, I just want to say I'm I'm sorry that I sounded like an asshole no I, you didn't I you didn't you didn't say no. in a stupid voice like you suggested. No, don't be silly. Don't be silly. So real, real quick, um, let's just talk about why some of the some of the areas of, of why collapse knowledge matters. Why is it relevant to not just the USAR team, but the tailboard firefighter, the the police officer, the EMS guy, the the really the community emergency response team member, or just the, your basic civilian, your neighbor, or anything like that. Sure. Uh, collapse knowledge would matter firstly because, like we said, you, you, the situations that can cause collapse aren't just predictable things like hurricanes. It could be something extremely unpredictable and happen in your neighborhood, whether it's an explosion, uh, a tornado, or anything like that. 
So it matters firstly because it can come to us at any day, at any time. The second reason it matters is if and when you are responding to a structural collapse, knowledge of how the building collapsed and how the building is constructed can make the difference in your approach to, to going in and, and performing a rescue immediately or possibly using a slower, more methodical approach to, to, to look out for hazards and mitigate hazards as you go in. The 1985 Mexico City earthquake, uh, after that earthquake, 10,000 people were killed. Basically, 4,000 victims were basically self-rescued or light-rescued. Once the heavy rescue teams got down there, they got out about 150 people. So 150 people were extricated. At the same time, due to aftershocks from the earthquake, uh, about 150 rescue team members were killed. So pretty much a one-for-one -one ratio of number of people they rescued versus number of rescuers that were killed in those rescuers due to the aftershocks. In part, that was, that was because of relatively poor knowledge of, of structural collapse. Gotcha. Um, and you and want... like we, you know, I used to obviously work down where you are in, in Florida, and that was always one of those things is after a hurricane came through, right after winds reach a certain speed, then no one's responding, right? No emergency workers are responding. Then afterwards, even getting to them, and this is, you know, low-level hurricanes, tropical storms even with trees down and things like this, you're kind of on your own a little bit. You are. And, and it's one of those things where even the – you know, with the community emergency response teams, which are pretty prolific around that area of central Florida, but even people that aren't involved, you know, being able to get out of their homes, help their neighbors and all that thing is you don't have an immediate response from, from your fire, police, et cetera, coming in. So I think, uh, I think people vastly overestimate the, the response capability of their local rescue system. Um, the, the fact is, if and when a large-scale event comes through, your rescue system is going to get sucked up and bogged down so quickly that you may well be the, the only person able to do anything in terms of rescue on your street for hours, possibly days, depending on how bad the roads are. Right. Um, we, we train in situations to access areas via helicopter because the roads just aren't there. No, that's, uh, that's a good point. So you kind of briefly discussed some of the causes of collapse from from mudslides to hurricanes to construction accidents to explosions, high winds, things like that, uh, obviously earthquakes, floods. But when we look at it, there's some typical collapse patterns that are out there. So just for the layperson, and we'll put some graphics up on the element portion. So this should be on iTunes, SunCloud. But if you go to Element Rescue, we're able to post some PDFs and things like that for you to kind of download on some of the stuff that we're talking about. So when we do this, we'll, we'll post some of these things up. But talk about some of the collapse patterns and why they actually matter, uh, why it's important for, for people to understand the various collapse patterns that are out there. Sure. There are five kind of main collapse patterns that we like to talk about. Um, these patterns were first discovered to be patterns and, and first really uh, analyzed and, and recorded as being patterns during World War II while London was being bombed. What they found was that buildings would collapse in similar ways kind of every time, you know, they, they would see the same, the same type of collapse pattern over and over again once they saw these buildings coming down. Those five patterns are detailed in NFPA 1670, and that would include lean-to, V, like V-E-E, A-frame, pancake, and cantilever. So those would be the five primary types of collapse that we talk about, and pretty much everything else we see is some kind of variation 
on one of those types of collapse. Okay, and kind of the importance of it is is a couple of them will produce a very obvious void that uh, usually based around where the load-bearing wall is or the uncollapsed wall that would provide that first-in person the best opportunity to potentially find somebody alive and do a rescue. Exactly. So we, we care about how it collapsed because how it collapsed helps dictate where voids will exist if any voids do exist. By void, you know, we, we mean basically just an empty space inside the rubble that gives someone some breathing room and gives someone a place where they won't be crushed. So if uh, I was going to go ahead and just create a, a visual picture with my eloquent speech right now, for those that don't have something in front of them, if we're talking like an A-frame, we would have a, a support wall right in the middle and then off of each side uh, a collapsed portion that reaches the ground on each distal end, right? Like a, almost like a TP, but when that, what's holding it up in the middle is uh, the supported wall. Yes, sir. Okay, so the voids that you're talking about would be on each side, close in, um, where people would normally go into like a TP even. That, that's correct. So the voids, if any, are going to be adjacent to the wall that's still standing. That's okay. the key point. Gotcha. As you, look into those other, as you look into those other main types, you're going to find that generally speaking, if there's a void, it's going to be near walls that are still standing. So that, that's where you would want to begin your search. Gotcha. Drinking a little bit of beer there, man. One interesting thing is, is correct me if I'm not mistaken, uh, going back to the early structural collapse courses that I had, is out of all of them, a lot of people think that the pancake is probably the worst, but in reality, the cantilever is probably the more dangerous. I, I would agree with that. I would say that cantilever is extremely hazardous. It can let go at any moment with, with practically no warning. And versus a pancake, which, as you're saying, looks really bad, but the fact is, all the energy that was inside that building is now ex- expended. So when everything is collapsed, one thing on top of the other, there is nowhere left for the building to slide or to fall down. You could stand on top of it in relative safety. I got you. So if you could, real quick, just kind of give the example of, uh, as far as survivable voids, comparing, let's say, a really heavy structure compared to a lightweight structure and then we'll get into construction types and stuff here in a little bit but just on a on a basic heavy structure versus a light structure as far as the voids that may you may likely find so heavy structures generally speaking it's going to take a lot more to bring them down Um, this is in part because heavy structures usually involve cast in place construction so we're, we're using a lot heavier components that we build with and the connections are much stronger so when a building is really heavy, like it's concrete or reinforced concrete block or whatever, or red iron steel, basically it takes much more to bring it down. But when it does come down, it's a lot more weight coming down. There will usually be less survivable voids because everything just gets pulverized underneath it. A light structure, on the other hand, whether it's wood frame, metal frame, or something like that, Obviously, they come down a lot more easily, right? We all know what a 2x4 stud is. We can all pick that up with our hands. We can all build a 2x4 stud wall with our hands. So it shouldn't come as too much of a surprise that it doesn't take nearly as much force to collapse that 2x4 wall or that wood frame floor. So a light structure, it will come down much more easily, whether it's from wind or explosions or whatever. But when it does come down, it's going to have a lot more likelihood of having survivable voids. 
Okay. So where else, because um, we were talking a little bit before as far as where you may find voids, so obviously lighter structures will produce potentially more voids, which may increase your opportunity for rescue of people. But there's other void locations in buildings, uh, like stairwells and, and things like that too, right? Yeah, that, that's a great point. So what we say is, look, if you see walls that are standing, start there. Start adjacent to that. Um, as you're saying, stairwells are usually going to be more heavily reinforced. So what that means is that it's going to, if everything else comes down around them, there's a possibility that they'll still be there intact. So stairwells are usually a great place to try to look. Um, if you can find large furniture, large equipment, oftentimes it's possible that people sheltered in place under that those items, and they, they might have a void there. Yeah, it's interesting because I think like uh, I saw a special uh, in Japan, and after some of their earthquakes, they actually feng shui the crap out of things as far as actually keeping heavier furniture away from the walls or load-bearing walls in there, uh, predicting that if they start feeling a quake, that's where they run to, figuring that it will produce some sort of potential void in there. So they actually place their heavier furniture in areas for the simple fact that it could produce a void if there's an earthquake, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, the Japanese are very proactive in both their construction methods uh, in terms of seismic design, but also in, in terms of really safety protocols and rescue protocols, and that, that's a great example of it. Good use of seismic protocols, man. That's good. <laughs> Talk to me after beer number three. It won't be as good. I know, I'm getting ready to crack beer number two here in a second. Do you believe in aliens? And what role do they have in structural um, collapse? That's a great question. Yeah, let's bring that to later. Okay, so another thing that I kind of want to hit on, which I think is kind of interesting, is really what you do. You talked about, uh, besides all your degrees and shit, although that took up quite a bit of time getting through that, we'll go through and, and bypass that portion. So what you do on a team, I'm just kidding with you, um, <laughs> with USAR teams, is you're part of, which is kind of interesting just because of the medical correlation of it, but you're kind of a, a quick reaction force or rapid structural triage part of that element where – describe what that does. So if you, if you get there and there's – you know whether it's a Katrina or it's a Haiti or something like that, and you've got multiple buildings. How would how would you your job be as far as how how what are your key performance parameters for responding to an event like that with being part of a rapid structural triage team? I'm going to answer the first part of your question first. You were asking me about what my role was. Um, my role, so I'm there only as an advisor to the rescue team. I don't make decisions. I don't tell them what to do or where to go. I'm there to say, hey, have you guys thought about this? Or let's maybe look at that. Or here's how possibly I would approach it. But nothing more than that. So I make recommendations and they choose whether or not they want to follow them. My role is to basically enhance their performance capabilities to give them more of a comfort level with a very hazardous situation. Now, a lot of firefighters, you know, the, these search and rescue teams, they're made up of primarily firefighters who are who are trained in tech rescue. And so these guys, a lot of times they're they're going to be used to seeing collapse in lighter structures. They go to a you know they go to a structure fire, structure collapses, they've seen a lot of lightweight structures come down. I can't be as much help to them in that because they already know what to expect. They know where what's going to happen and, and they're usually familiar with the signs of collapse. 
Um, where I'm more useful is when you start getting into heavier buildings and we start getting into buildings that we don't usually see collapse. So I can help them figure out what the best way to respond to that might be and, you know, how to mitigate the hazards. All right. So, so that's, that's – sorry. Okay. No, I was going to say that kind of brings us to the more – I don't want to say complicated, but a, a little bit more of the complex portion of structural collapse and what you teach also is – the building construction. So besides the regular anatomy, we'll get into kind of that stuff that you and I worked on a little bit. You know, you have wood, you have heavy steel, light steel, concrete, precast, uh, unreinforced masonry, things like that. But the systems that are out there, there's two main systems and you can probably talk briefly on that and try and make it as unboring as possible. But it's somewhat critical because you've obviously got to be well-versed in it. So when you look at a structure, you can tell what mix of materials are there. So uh, the two basic ones, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, is the Brannigan system where you have you know, your type 1, type 2, type 3, uh, et cetera, and your ATC or your Applied Technology Council, which goes into like W1, W2, and stuff like that. Can you kind of briefly explain, one, why those exist and kind of a little bit what they are? Sure. So just like you're saying, it is kind of a boring subject. It's not a super se- sexy subject. And especially when we arrive on scene of a collapse, I'm not going to be thinking in my head, oh, is this a type 1 structure or a type 3 structure? Like, no, I don't think in those terms. But these systems do exist, and it exists primarily just to give us a way to classify buildings and to talk about buildings and to be able to compare them in terms of their collapse performance. So all the firefighters that listen to your podcast will probably be familiar with the Brannigan construction types consisting of type 1, type 2, type 3, type 4, type 5. Type 1 being the very best non-combustible, the World Trade Center, main towers, those were type 1 construction. Before that day, before September 11, 2001, no type 1 building had ever collapsed due to fire. So that was the first time that ever happened. Hmm. On the complete opposite end of the scale, you have type 5 construction, which is going to be very combustible construction. You know, that's going to be something like your wood or your light frame metal, something like that. That's Brannigan's way of looking at things. It's primarily fire-related. Gotcha. We also have a similar system which, which basically runs parallel to the Brannigan system, and that's produced by the Applied Technology Council, or ATC. So ATC breaks it down a little bit further, and they, they use a system that makes a little bit more sense to me. For example, wood buildings, they'll call them W1 or W2, Steel buildings, they'll call them S1, S2, S3, S4, depending on how heavy the steel is versus how light the steel is. And then, you know, different types of concrete buildings will be C1, C2, etc. And so this breaks the building down much more specifically in terms of how it's constructed and sometimes makes more sense. Comparing the two systems, Brannigan focuses more on the effects of fire, whereas the Applied Technology Council system is much more general and would be more appropriate for urban search and rescue teams that uh, look at buildings that collapse for a wide variety of reasons. Okay. Is there one that's used like, let's say, you know, terminology, if you go to Europe or if you go to, you know, something here in the United States versus something somewhere else, is there, does that exist or what is the interaction? Like if you start, let's say, you know, uh, LA or, or Fairfax, deploy out to another place uh is the terminology all the same when they get there or is it kind of different all over the world in my experience more of the high level 
USAR teams are going to be talking about buildings in terms of an ATC system. Okay. However, with that being said, if you arrive on scene of a collapse, you're not you're probably not going to be talking in terms of is it a W1, W2. You're really just going to be concerned with is this system one is this construction type one of the types that is known to collapse quickly or is it something that's going to fail more slowly? That that's more of the discussion that you'd be likely to have with someone like me. Okay, and we talked about voids too, but as we go up into larger concrete systems and things like that where whatever the the pathology is or the forces that brought that down, uh, we mentioned before that you're probably less likely to, to find these larger voids. Um, but yet, if a team goes in there, obviously as you go up in weight of material, it's a much longer process because of potential shoring operations and things like that, right? That That's right. And that that's part of what my role is on the team. You were mentioning I, I am kind of part of a reconnaissance team. So a lot of times, well, the rest of the team is kind of setting up the, the base of operations. I'm going to be going out with a reconnaissance team to take the first look at buildings that have, have collapsed. So I'm part of the rapid structural triage, or RST. Basically, we look at buildings like you would in terms of a mass casualty event to see, okay, where do we need to devote our time? Where do we have the greatest likelihood of saving the most lives for the least amount of risk to the rescuers? Um, or conversely, do we have a building here? Yes, it's a very high-risk situation, but there's also probably a lot of people inside here. So I help contribute to that decision-making process. I got you. So you brought up risk as far as that goes. What are the risk categories, man, uh, that you talk about as far as low risk, medium risk, and, and why? And how that sure. relates to construction so, matters. You know, there, there, there's a good story about one of the structure specialists like me that were out there at, at the World Trade Center. This was before my time. But the firefighters were asking the structure specialist, you know, the engineer, about, about a certain area to go into. And they said, hey, you know, engineer, this area over here, we're about to work in here. Is this area safe? And the structure specialist responds, well, no, it's not safe. If it were safe, I wouldn't be here. So right. we, we never talk in terms of safe or not safe. We talk in, really in terms of low risk, medium risk, or high risk. A low risk situation would be either a building that's very lightly damaged and we really don't see anything wrong with it. Or conversely, it could be a building that is completely pancake collapsed and come down. So if a building is basically on its knees and destroyed, a lot of times I'm not going to see too much risk in that because I'm not going to see a lot of things above my head that can collapse on my face. Um, a, a medium to high risk situation usually becomes those types of construction where if something does shift, if something does change inside of it, it's going to collapse very quickly. It's not going to give much warning. At the same time, it's really hard for you to evaluate whether or not that building is significantly damaged or whether you know whether there's stuff that going on inside there that you can't see. Those would be examples of medium and high risk situations. And I think that's pretty much why we're you know you earn your your spot on that is these things are you know not to get bogged down in other crap that you and I've been talking about a whole bunch lately as far as linear thought processes versus nonlinear complexity and dynamics those things that are unpredictable and stuff but when you get into the situation in which brought the building down then you couple that with the potential complexity of the building construction itself then compound that with figuring out 
the risk factor of sending people in there versus how many people would potentially be alive, you're dealing in a in a nonlinear environment, man. Right? There's there's still things that are unpredicted, unpredictable. It's very non nonlinear in nature, which makes it hard to to be able to say whether you know what you're going to find in there, how safe it is for you to move in there, etc. So that seems to be like where you would probably. I mean, when you think about it, like firemen and really anybody that we we instruct, they usually have a very large mission essential task list. Like, there's a lot of responsibilities that are in there. So to basically be able to be that guy on a USAR team as a firefighter with all these other responsibilities from rope rescue, trench rescue, um, everything that is involved in tech rescue with confined space, etc., and then stay really awesome at being able to look at buildings, understand the construction, understand the collapse, understand what is the or the pathology behind it is not something that's probably realistic, I would imagine. You know, no matter how much you study it as a fireman, you've got all these other jobs and requirements for training and things to keep up with. So, you know, even FEMA, you know, what do they talk about as far as how hard it is to properly evaluate uh, structural hazards, which probably is one of the main reasons that you respond in here with your expertise. Sure. Just like you're saying, I'm not a firefighter, right? can't be a firefighter. That's not, that's not what I'm good at and, and what my skills are. Um, and for, but on the plus side, I've also had a solid six years of training on buildings and what makes them stand up and what makes them fall. And so, so what, I, what I heard the question was, what, what, does, what does FEMA have to say about how damn hard it is to tell what's going on with these structures? Is that right? Is that right? Yep. So it's amazingly hard. Anyone, it's amazingly difficult. Anyone that thinks that they can tell you exactly how a structure is damaged and where you can go and where you can't go and what you might do that's going to change that structure, anyone that thinks that they can calculate this with a spreadsheet is, is lying through their teeth. It's, not, it's just not feasible. Um, FEMA did have a really excellent statement, and I'm going to bore you by quoting it to you for, for a second here. Here's what they say. I'm I haven't sorry, even man. started reading That's yet. it. My bad. My bad. Your voice is soothing, so that's a compliment. Go ahead. FEMA says, the problem of identifying, let alone properly evaluating structural hazards, is staggering. A well-trained engineer may, at best, be able to rate the risk of various hazards on some arbitrary scale, like bad, very bad, and deadly. So everything I went to school for for six years, all I can really tell you is, yeah, this building is worse than that building, but that building over there, that one probably will kill you. Not very accurate or precise, right? No. I'd expect more out of you. Yeah, accurate hopefully, but I, I, I don't think it's precise. <laughs> mm-hmm. So basically, even, even these guys that have gone to school for it, we can't tell you exactly what's going to happen, but we can hopefully give you a better comfort level with with what you're going to be doing in that building. So when you talk about it, um, and this can kind of be, this is probably going to be a couple questions in one, so I'll try and make it as non-complex as possible. But when you're looking there, just kind of brief us just on a very 30,000-foot view of when you go in, what are the hazard identification assessments that you're looking at? that are the the gross ones, if you will, like not getting down. And I don't think you get down into the complete subtlety of it, but you look at kind of that gross anatomy, if you will, 
on what's missing, what's not stable, you know, what's broken, cracks that are going through things on the size of cracks, etc. And then kind of using a, a six-sided approach to the reevaluation or the re-triaging, if you will. Right. So just like you're saying, for the most part, as a structure specialist, I'm usually not going to be interested in subtlety. I'm going to be interested in, in locating things that are grossly damaged, that are that are mismatched. I'm looking for a column that's no longer there. I'm looking for a beam that's you know that's that's almost cut in half. Um, I'm looking for large 45 degree cracks that are the size of my thumb. Um, you know, a, a crack that's a sixteenth of an inch. I'm usually not going to be too concerned with. So there's usually not a lot of subtlety in, in what we do. It's more in terms of, okay, what type of building is this? How heavy is it? What, what type of connections does it have? Which relates back to what the construction type is. And then once I know those things, I can kind of figure out whether I'm going to have any warning before this thing collapses. And if it will collapse, what kind of warning signs can I, can I look for or can I anticipate? What kind of just just because you brought it up, and I'll try and bring you back on target, but just so we have a ADHD moment here, what what are some of the warning signs you may you may encounter? Well, cracks, groans, you know, all of a sudden strange noises that we weren't hearing before. That would be an indicator that there's a serious red flag and something's happening around us. Um, dust, all of a sudden hanging in the air or ceiling plaster, you know, all of a sudden hanging in the air where it wasn't there before, mm-hmm. that's usually a, a pretty good indication that something is going on. Okay. Th- those are short-term warning signs. In the longer term, you know, we can, we can monitor buildings using total stations and surveying equipment and stuff like that, but that's really if you're going to be on site for several days. Okay. Gotcha. Did, did I answer your question? I feel yeah, like I... Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um... And I've seen some things, and um, obviously we work with some military organizations and stuff like that, with some things that can actually they, – they attach them onto some of the outside of the walls, and if they veer off a, a plumb line or they shift or there's some rattling or whatever, they set off these little like audible alarms. Yes. So there are some brilliant equipment out there. Um, you, you can get things that basically have built-in accelerometers. To, so basically you stick it on the side of the building. It has a built-in accelerometer, so if it's moving, it'll know, and it'll set off alarm. Uh, the great thing about that is you can go put that in an area that you really don't want to be hanging out in for very long. You yeah. stick it on there, and then it's it's remote. You, you can get those readings remotely, so you don't even so no one has to stay down there, and or no one has to be in, in a danger zone that they shouldn't be in. Right. So that's that would be a more expensive solution, but it, they're out there and guys use them. A, a, a much less expensive thing would be like an analog crack gauge. So it, it's a little a clear plastic piece that you epoxy to the side of the wall, and you, you put it over a crack, and it, it, it shows you pretty clearly whether or not a crack is moving. All right, and you can actually That's- apply that to like chubbier people too, right, when they're leaning like plumbers and stuff like that, um, just to see what that crack increases and stuff like that. Is that correct? I feel like the sweat on their body might be a bond inhibitor to the epoxy. So that's I don't really point. know how well it I didn't even think about that, but that's why you have all the degrees. That's a freaking that's phenomenal. That's why you have Yeah, that's good, man. I appreciate that. I, I didn't even think that. Um, you're way ahead of me. All right, that's the end of part one with Recon Responses' Andy Schrader. Check out part two, which we will continue our discussion with Andy on all things structural collapse and his seven cats, his secret life as a Trekkie and Star Warsian plus the untimely passing of a squirrel gunter. Thanks.